Hello, peoples, and welcome back to another episode of Esoscarica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. I am your haunted host, Ryan Siebold, coming at you with another I got five on it five minute mini review. Today's show asks a question Does this film suck your blood or does it just suck? It certainly does suck. That's right, we're talking about 1992's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Directed by Francis Ford Coppola, Google has this summarized as, Count Dracula, a 15th century prince, is condemned to live off the blood of the living for eternity. Young lawyer Jonathan Harker is sent to Dracula's castle to finalize a land deal. But when the Count sees a photo of Harker's fiancée, Mina, the spitting image of his dead wife, he imprisons him and sets off for London to track her down. This film was shot on a budget of about $40 million and was a box office hit, bringing in about $215 million. It reportedly even saved Coppola's production house, American Zoetrope, from financial ruin. Now, I looked up about a half a dozen summaries of this film all over the internet, and every single one I could find only represented about 10% of what this film had to offer. This movie is a cacophony of ideas. Get it? Because coffin? Anyways, this is what I'm going to call a Venn diagram movie. There are so many well-executed ideas in this movie. Some go together, but all of them do not. This is like if a chef was charged with coming up with a dish to represent New Orleans. Okay, we're going to start with gumbo. Gumbo's great. What else is New Orleans? Beignets. Ooh, I love beignets. Okay, we'll put a beignet on the side. What else? Crawfish. Hell yeah, crawfish. Stuff that sucker inside the beignet. Let his little claw hang out, because fuck you, that's why. Douse the whole thing in powdered sugar. What else? Oysters. Oysters Rockefeller. Hell yeah. Surround the plate with Oysters Rockefeller. Let's cover it with brie cheese. That's French. Why not? What else? Bananas Fosters. Ooh, smother the whole dish in Bananas Fosters. We love Bananas Fosters. Okay, now throw it in the broiler. Let's let the whole thing meld together. We'll garnish it with Mardi Gras beads, because life's a party. Wash it all down with a mint julep. Hell yeah, New Orleans. So yeah, any one of those ideas would be great on their own, but brought together on the same plate, served as one dish? I was so confused. So I wanted to find out what happened, and I did a ton of behind-the-scenes research. My first takeaway is it must have been wildly rewarding to be a creative on this project, as everyone was given a very long leash to just do whatever they wanted for the most part. As I stated, a lot of this worked for me, but a lot of it didn't, so let's get on the list and find out which is which. For starters, this movie stars Gary Oldman, Wynota Ryder, Sir Anthony Hopkins, Keanu Reeves, Billy Campbell, Richard E. Grant, Sadie Frost, Tom Waits, and Carrie Elwes, all doing different things. Like the New Orleans dish I described, any one of these actors on their own is fantastic. I like all these people. But brought under one roof, especially when they're all in the same scene together, can be a little off-putting at times. Most notably Keanu Reeves, who was coming off of shooting three films back-to-back-to-back, including Point Break, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, and My Own Private Idaho for Cus Van Sant, and then he goes right into shooting this, and he was exhausted. Poor guy was doing his best to hang in there, but at the end of the day, this is old-school Keanu Reeves, right? So he's doing this incredibly off-putting English accent, and it comes off a little cheesy at times. Especially in a movie like this, when everyone else is cranked to 11, overacting their ass off, and then you got poor Keanu just sitting there hanging in there, like, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the East, and Juliet is totally the sun. Like, it's just, ugh. Moving on, I'm going to go right to what I love the most, which is the practical effects. So this is being shot in 1991, right? So we're coming off the heels of the abyss, and we're neck deep in productions for films like Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park. This is when everyone was all chubbed up about CGI. It was all brand new, and everyone wanted to use it. It was the new toy in everybody's toolbox. And Coppola said, no, thank you. He wanted to shoot this like a 1930s universal monster picture. And good on him for it, because it's what I loved about this movie the most. 
So he fired his entire effects crew and then brought in his son, Roman Coppola, to take charge and devise new creative ways to do everything practical and in camera on set. There is one CGI shot in the entire movie, and it's the blue flames around Dracula's castle. Everything else was done with miniatures and practical effects. There are a ton of double exposures. There's matte paintings, rear projection, miniatures with forced perspective. I could make an entire show just on the practical effects that I loved about this. If you guys are interested in stuff like this, there's a ton of footage online. You can go research it on YouTube and find out exactly how they did all this stuff. It's very, very interesting. They even brought in an old turn-of-the-century hand crank camera, and the camera crew would sing a little ragtime song as they would crank the film through the camera to keep the tempo proper. So there's footage online of the camera crew on this crane booming up over this million-dollar backlot, quietly singing, Camp down, ladies, sing this song, do-da, as they fly over this... Oh, anyway, go check it out online. It all exists there. It's brilliant. Speaking of camera, this film was shot by Michael Bauhaus, which is another thing I love about this movie. Bauhaus is coming off of shooting Goodfellas for Scorsese. He went on to go shoot a lot of things for Scorsese all through the 90s. And because all the practical effects were done in camera, I could only imagine he had a lot to do with that as well. You start talking about double exposures and mats and miniatures and forced perspectives. He has to have a hand in all of that. How do we execute this? How do we light it? How do we make it look real? From all the research I did, it does seem that him and Roma Coppola were working hand in hand throughout the whole process. Fantastic stuff. Moving on, the costumes. Holy shit, the costumes were crazy good. Done by Japanese costume designer Aiko Ishioka, she won an Oscar for this film, and well-deserved. She went on to go work for Tarsum Singh for films like The Cell and The Fall, and did a bunch of stuff for Bjork throughout the 90s as well. And if you've seen Tarsum Singh's work, or you're familiar with Bjork's work, and then you watch this movie, instantly you say, yeah, that checks out. The sets and production design had a lot of gothic art influences. You had some Victorian elements for set and setting. Hellboy creator Mike Mignola stepped in to design Dracula's castle. There's a lot of technical wizardry going on here. So now let's move on to some things that didn't work for me. Screenwriter James V. Hart was coming off his first screenplay for Hook, for Steven Spielberg, did this film, and then went on to write things like Muppet Treasure Island, Contact, and then on the back part of his career, he starts writing things like Sahara and The Last Mimsy. Coppola then encouraged actors for daily input, which required daily rewrites. So that leads to a lot going on narratively. You're jumping around, so many things happening without explanation, and there's no rules set up. Jason and I talk about this on the show all the time. I'll go down any road you want me to. You just got to let me know the rules of the game that I'm playing. At times, Dracula is an old man, a young man, a werewolf, a pile of rats, a bunch of mist. I never know what the hell is going on or why he's these things. It's never really explained. And if it is, we're moving at such a breakneck pace and following so many subplots. I felt like I was having a stroke. And Roman Coppola was using practical effects as transitions between scenes. So a glass would turn into an eyeball or the inside of a peacock feather would turn into a train tunnel and now we're doing that, which is all awesome stuff. The problem is I was never given a minute to digest any of this or to process what was happening. We're just thrust right into the next batch of nonsense. It was as though the set pieces were way more important than the story itself. And that's really unfortunate because at the heart of all of this is a really wonderful tragic love story. At its core, it's about a man who is at odds with God over lost love, which is in and of itself interesting to me because in the Bible, God is love. Dracula denounces God, gives up his humanity, and embraces evil, but all this is buried under a ton of other things happening. Lost character arcs, muddied exposition, so I felt lost and alone in Transylvania. I do think this is a movie that warrants a rewatch. There are some of these concepts that are probably on the screen. I'm just being taken by the hand and jerked around. Hey, come look at this, come look at this, and I never know what's going on or given the time necessary to really digest and appreciate the story itself, which if you don't have that, what are we doing here? My three adjectives are buffet, because it is. It's a buffet of ideas. They don't all go together, but man, do they look good on the plate. Next is technically brilliant, because it is. 
any one of these elements on their own is amazing. Any one of these actors on their own is totally watchable. It just all comes together in such an odd way, which leads me to my third, which is dizzying. That's a hard word to say, dizzying. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, it's just all happening at such a breakneck pace that I felt dizzy at the end of it. I wanted to love this film so much more. From a technical standpoint, I'm giving this movie an A. But narratively, I want to give it a C. So I'm going to meet in the middle and say this is a B movie. But damn it if it's not a great B movie. Those are my opinions. Hit us up at, at Esoterica Cinema on Twitter. Let us know what you think. That's it for this week's review. See you next week on Esoterica Cinema.